Welcome to 2100 Season 3. My name is Jason Peters and I am your host. I am a writer, journalist, uh, podcaster, producer, host of this show. And I'm reporting to you live from January 19th, 2021 at 845 at night from Black Lives Matter Plaza in front of the White House the day before Joe Biden's inauguration. And why am I recording right now? I could have lied and just done this in a studio instead of talking into my phone in front of the White House, surrounded by police and soldiers, the National Guard. There's 25,000 members of the National Guard out here and uh, surrounded by press, a lot of press and media because those are the only people crazy enough to come here other than dedicated activists. But this episode is titled Proximity to History because I am. I'm in very close proximity to history right now. I'm, I, can, I, I couldn't throw a baseball at the White House, but I could throw a baseball once, pick it up, throw it twice, pick it up, probably throw it a third time. I could, I'm three baseball throws with crow hops away from the White House. And tomorrow, uh, a new man, a new person, new people move into the White House and the world will change because of that. My proximity to history is a couple hours and a couple baseball throws. Uh, It's probably gonna be the most historic thing I ever witnessed in person aside from, actually, I don't know, I've seen a lot. And that's why I'm, I'm here recording this episode because What is the most historic thing that you've ever seen in your life? Think about it. Consider what is the most historically significant event that you've ever witnessed. And I'm not talking about like on TV, on the radio, or something you heard about. I mean, saw with your own eyes. Something you witnessed and you weren't, you were in the moment. You saw and you felt like you were a part of. And that's what this episode's about. We're going to talk about what it is like to be a witness to history, someone who's a part of many great things. And we've got two great guests on this episode. We have an Olympian who participated in the 2016 Rio Olympics. And we also have a man who was indicted, uh, not indicted. He, he had to go in front of the Mueller report. He, he was, he was called to testify in front of Robert Mueller. He appeared on, uh, Johnny Carson's show. He, aided the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. We've got a lot to talk about today. And this is a time-based show. What we do is we talk about time and we consider time. What is historic? What matters? What will affect time in the future? Because right now, I'm before history. I'm, 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 tomorrow is the day shit happens. Uh, Tomorrow, yeah, tomorrow is the inauguration and the swearing in of Joe Biden. And I'll take you through some of that. Throughout this episode, we're gonna go between an Olympian, we're gonna go between a comedian slash activist, and we're gonna go through inauguration together. Welcome to 2100.
2100. Welcome to the 2100 Podcast. My name is Jason Peters. My name is Jason Peters. This episode is titled Proximity to History because I am. I'm in very close proximity to history right now. I'm... All right. First things first, um, could you introduce yourself real quick? Uh, yeah, I'm Stephen Landon. I'm a 2016 U.S. Olympic team member, currently strength coach, um, as you put it earlier, a guy that wears a lot of hats. So a lot yeah, of different no, jobs. What, for, for the people at home, what were you uh, in the Olympics? What oh, sport? What oh, yeah. Sport? I apologize. Uh, I was a 2016 Olympian in the sport of taekwondo. Yeah. Um, are you looking to compete moving forward? Uh, is our future Olympics uh, in your in your uh, in your sight? Well, uh, it would be uh, 2024 because Team uh, USA didn't Team USA didn't qualify uh, my weight division for Taekwondo for the 2020 slash 2021 Olympics. So it yeah, would be it would be it would be further down the line. Yeah. So here's a, a thing I noticed first and foremost on your Olympic like athlete profile page, I realize it says that you are 6'2", 220. And I would just like to say that is my exact size. So it's nice, nice. to know that I have the body of an Olympian and you are a, a body positive model for uh, the community. And I respect you and I just wanna salute you. Well, it's uh, on, on the bright side after this, we can, we can share clothes. So yes, it'll be yes. great. I'll do a swap. I'll absolutely do a swap. The <laughs> the episode that I specifically wanted to interview you for was an episode titled Proximity to History, okay. um, where in which we talked to people that lived through amazing things, experienced things that no one else had ever lived through before. So um, t- let's talk about your experience at the 2016 Rio Olympics. Uh, First of all, first and foremost, what is it like to train to get to that point where you are headed to the Olympics? I imagine that's a lifelong dream. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, the interesting thing about it that I always tell people is like, um, particularly little kids, whatever their sport is, um, I think everybody, there's kind of this weird reputation that people get whenever it comes to qualifying for an Olympics that people do this whole like, oh, well, in the future, one day, whenever I finally become an Olympian, and it's like, um, I tell people when I finally qualified for the Olympics at Olympic qualification that it, I was ecstatic for about 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then it was kind of like, oh, you know, you're expecting this transformative experience. And it's like, realistically, uh, it was a tough match that I had to qualify for the Olympics, but it wasn't anything crazy. Like it was a mm-hmm. match I should have won for sure. And so it's like, um, what I usually end up telling kids is, Uh, What determines whether or not you're going to make it to the Olympics in whatever sport you're trying to do or be successful in whatever field field you're choosing to have uh, your endeavors in, it comes down to what you do daily. And Mm -hmm. so it's like getting to the Olympics starts yesterday kind of a thing. And so it's like, like I said, I, I was a little bit disappointed because I expected that transformative experience of, you know, that Hollywood has where... Uh, the, you know, the buzzer goes off at the end of the match and the crowd cheers and fireworks go off. And it was like, you know, uh, it, the qualification I, event was, yeah, yeah. I think you're on to something really good because 
what inspired me to do this episode is that I have a lot of proximity to history. Like uh, I've covered uh, white house events, like, oh, nice. uh, like, like things where the secret service are around. I've been at like riots and all the, all these things, all these moments that after the moment, there is always like a period of like awkwardness, like the time where everyone realizes it's time to go home that yeah. it's it, or like that tomorrow is still a thing. There is, right. there is still more to do even after you get to like that, where you think the, the, the payoff is. Right. Absolutely. It's the, I mean, it's the, everybody's interested in what happened after the karate kid and that's why Cobra Kai works. Right. Cause like, mm. Oh yeah, it's cool. Everybody likes to see the happy ending, but it's like, everybody wants to see Johnny Lawrence washed up 40 years later. And it's like, it, don't get me wrong. I don't, I, there are probably more pertinent examples, but uh, Netflix is yeah, uh, the, my yeah. net, my Netflix is my Netflix cues on the TV and it just happens to be sitting there. So it's pertinent, mm. but uh yeah, no, it, it's 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 always intriguing because I mean, even since we were little kids, it's like the story always ends at dragon gets slayed, guy gets the girl, happily ever after kind of a thing, and it's like they never talk um, about going home and taking a shit and going to bed, right? And it's like I got uh, I walked back into the holding area, like I took a picture with my coach, like high fives my training partners, and it was like, okay, what do you guys want to eat for dinner tonight? And it was yeah. like, all right, life goes on. Do you remember the meal after you qualified for the Olympics? Absolutely. So we were in a city called uh, Aguas Calientes, Mexico. Um, mm. And we, by the time we got back to the hotel, because like what most people don't see in, in Olympic sports is when the competition's over, you have drug testing. And it's like, mm. you have to wait there as long as it takes to go pee. And it's like, you fought five matches throughout the day, you're <laughs> horribly dehydrated. And it's like, I've had, I, I know friends that have stayed there till two o'clock in the morning, because they just couldn't go to the bathroom. And it's like, um, by the time we got back that night, it was like 11 o'clock at night, you know, a, cu- a bunch of people that don't speak in- or don't speak Spanish mm-hmm. in ca- not a smaller town, but maybe a lesser known town, town in Mexico. And it's like, um, we ended up like walking the streets till we found a random restaurant that happened to be open. And it was like almost every other competitor from that day was in the same restaurant. <laughs> it was the only place that was open. So no, that makes sense. And that's kind of like the life of an Olympian. It's the type of experience that um, no one, it, it, it probably, that probably feels normal to you at this point. Um, yeah. And it's, it, it, it's all business too. And the fact that like, especially in a combat sport, people always think like, Oh, you gotta, you gotta hate the people you're fighting. And it's like, most of the people I fight great people. Like I have no problem with them. And it's like, it's why nobody under outside of it understands why after the fight, Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao are friends. And it's like, yeah, yeah they, they put on the show and everything like that to raise money and get well, people interested in, in, in the in fight. In a circumstance like that, there's probably no one that understands the other person more closely. Like there's no two people with more similar like problems in lives than like Pacquiao and Mayweather or you and a fellow Taekwondo Olympic challenger, you know? Absolutely. And it's uh, it, it definitely creates this weird camaraderie of like, you see people after they retire and they stay friends with people they fought for like 30 years after. And it's like, um, obviously on a much less intense and serious scale, but it's like, you stay, you stay friends with the people you're in the trenches with. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. And, and talk to me about like, so we're talking about proximity to history. What was it like to be at the 2016 Rio Olympics? Uh, talk me through some of that. You know, it was uh, going into it before every Olympics. There's always like a 
not a scandal, but something that the press wants to cover in that like Beijing, it was the smog. Uh, London, it was the crazy traffic in London. And like, what are we going to do? Uh, Athens, they barely finished the venues before the games. Uh, Rio, as I'm sure you remember, it was all about chock uh, full of stuff. Yeah, chock full of stuff, but it was mainly Zika, right? Like, oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, Zika. Exactly. Oh, we're living in a different pandemic. I forgot about Zika virus. Yeah. Well, that's the funny thing, right? Like, it seems like it was 20 years ago at this point. But Zika, it's like, that was like, ah, uh, I, I forgot about Zika. That never really got here. That never really got yeah. to the States very, very, in a in a really meaningful way. Wow. W- way to Absolutely. dig out Zika. Uh, right. And so, like, everybody, there was there were actual people, like, I got asked the question by journalists of, oh, you know, are you considering skipping the Olympics? And I was like, no. Absolutely not, but like everybody got that question. And so uh, one of the things that I hate is when you talk to somebody that's done something really cool and they go, ah, it's no big deal. There are a lot of times in life that I get that where it's like you go to do something and you're like, yeah, skydiving was rad, but like I'm never going to do it again. What I always like to tell people is that as cool as you think conceptually the, the Olympics are, um, it was way cooler than I expected. Like I was definitely <laughs> blown like, away. That's great. Talk your shit. I'd love to hear about it uh, because that I agree 100%. I get to do a lot of stuff that I think is very cool and I'm very proud of. But at, at some point you feel like you have to be like, you have to say it's no big deal so that other people will not feel like their less exciting lives Right. Uh, is less. So you kind of, that's kind of a thing you throw out there for other people, but no, I know exactly what you mean, but talk to me about it. Why, why was it so cool? Cause I could, I, I have high expectations about right. what it would be like to be an American representing America in the Olympics. Like even just that walk out of the tunnel moment when you're wearing right. the same track suit or whatever, Yeah, <laughs> that always seemed cool. And I'm not an athlete at all. So uh, what most people don't know is it actually starts with staging. And so before whatever country the Olympics is in, Team USA will meet in a central location. Uh, for Rio, we all met up in Houston, like the entirety of Team USA, and they go through, uh, that's where you get your kit, you go through a team orientation, everything like that. And it's like, it start, the cool factor started day one, because it was like, it was literally like a mini Nike store, you walk in and they go, hey, we have here listed your sizes. Are these all correct? And you go, yeah. And they go, okay, well, we've got a fitting room already set up for you for you to try on your apparel before you leave. Mm-hmm. It's like, you get like essentially a personal shopper that works for Nike. And he's like, hey man, like try on this shirt. If this shirt fits, these all fit. If this jacket fits, these all fit. And he's like, so it's streamlined, but then they do cool things like um, I got, they, they gave me a custom Team USA Beats headphones Mm-hmm. Um, and then the big surprise, every Olympics, there's always a, a, a surprise sponsor that they don't tell anybody about. Uh, this one was Omega watches. And so we got a 2016, uh, team USA Olympic Omega watch. And yeah, it's like, nice. yeah, crazy. They don't even sell it. And so, um, it, like it started there. I was a little bit jaded because I've been at opening ceremonies for things like Pan Am games, world university games. And so, going to the Olympic opening ceremony, I was kind of not being a jerk about it, but I was a little bit like, I've done it before. I've like, I've walked in behind the flag. It's, it's a cool feeling, but like, eh, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, Going through the tunnel, uh, unlike any of the other instances I've been in, it was like, as we started, we dropped down into the tunnel right before we walk out. And it's like, there's just this weird vibrating going on. I was like, what the heck is that noise? Like, what is that noise? And as we get closer and closer, I realized like, 
oh, it's the crowd. Like that's the crowd going nuts. <laughs> and it's like, um, the funny part is one of the things that most people don't see is because uh, everybody wants to be on, up front whenever on on te- on television cameras, mm. it's the wild west in that tunnel. People are like shoving, like you would uh. think nobody was on the same team. And so, um, you know, I, I I was trying to appreciate the moment, and so I went, you know what? Like I'm gonna hang back. I don't care if I'm at the front. Like I want to enjoy this. I don't. I'm not gonna focus on that. And what's funny is because I did that, I ended up getting like a crazy amount of screen time. Yeah, because, just because there was, I was no space. <laughs> Exactly. And so or it was like, for a cameraman to walk backwards and focus bingo. on somebody. Yeah. And so like, uh, whenever I got back to my phone, finally, I had like 250 messages from people that I hadn't talked to in years that were like, holy crap, I saw you on TV at opening ceremonies. And so it was one of those, um, that's, that's probably the one that I point to the most of like, I was jaded and I, you hear people go like, yeah, I've been to opening ceremonies, who cares? And it's like, mm. that was cooler than any opening ceremonies I've ever been to. Like, soccer stadium full of people losing their minds so Mm. uh it's coming from a smaller sport that has to be what it's like when you know lebron james goes out onto the floor in a stadium packed full of people like it just gets you ready to compete i get it um but then uh, obviously competition day it's like uh maybe arguably the most nervous i've ever been in my life about a competition it's something i've been doing that's perfectly reasonable right (laughs) <laughs> uh, and fair like that's that's definitely not going to blow anybody's mind but it's like uh, taekwondo being a, a a smaller sport particularly in the united states um you're used to the way tournaments run in that um like i've won nationals four times and all four times at the u.s championships by the time the tournament's done there's like three people in the stands watching and like mm. yeah you win a u.s title and and you get like you get like one person clapping and you're like, all right, cool. It's a modest um, sport. It's a modest sport. Yeah. It's And then for those that don't know, I think I, I, I learned about right. Taekwondo for this interview. All and right. don't, don't get me wrong here. I believe that it would not be unfair to call it a, a fighting sport with a points equivalent that is, it's like every two minutes is a new round. And yep. the more fancy the type of hit you do, the more points you get. And yep. you try to amass the most points per round. Whoever wins the most rounds wins. You're trying to hit people in the head and in their in their chest um, yep. protector thing. And yep. um, you only get points if the kick is like an impact kick or the punch is like an impact punch. No punches to the face in the Olympics. And um, what else am I missing? Oh, I thought it was really unique. Like if you pick your foot up and you put it back down, that could be a loss of point. Right. Like I, so I, that made me think that it is like the artistic version of fighting. If fighting was an art with a points element. Uh, at, so apt description. Absolutely. Uh, the, <laughs> the, 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 the 10 second elevator pitch that I always give people that give to people that ask without obviously the nitty gritty is I mm. tell them, um, it's the movie, the karate kid, but it's boxing rules. So like mm. you win by points, there's a set time, there's a number of rounds. You don't just have to like hit them three times and then the movie ends. And so it's like, um, yeah, I always tell people it's, uh, kicks only basically some punching, but kicks only, but it's boxing rules. I believe I watched your fight against a man from Iran. Okay. Yeah. Uh, on YouTube, but no, uh, I, th- I thought it was very interesting. Um, is the Olympics like the most historic thing you've ever witnessed or been a part of? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, 
off the top, I, I, I'm sure an hour from now, I might think of something better, mm-hmm. but, uh, well, I yeah, think uh, participating in the Olympics is no small feat. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's, it, most of the really cool, crazy stuff that's happened has been an extension of that. And so it's like, mm-hmm. uh, getting to, getting to go to the white house and meet a sitting president. And it's like, mm-hmm. Um, it, it's one of those things I, I, I especially know with how crazy politics is now, there are people that would be like, I'd never meet this president or I'd never meet mm. that president. And it's like, there's something to be said for getting to like, essentially go into the white house, you gotta shake take hands. That. Exactly. You gotta take and that. so, I mean, that you reach like the, that, that's as far as Taekwondo is going to take you in America. Yeah, so white house absolutely. to Rio, to Mexico. Right. Um, it's, get, it's not going to pay the bills. That's for sure. Here's a question. Get what got you into Taekwondo? Cause you're a man from, I believe, Oklahoma and Texas. Yeah. Um, so I, as a, a, on my fifth birthday, uh, I told my parents that I really wanted to be either a Ninja Turtle or Batman when I grew up and we were eating my birthday lunch mm-hmm. and there was a Taekwondo school across the street. And my mom kind of went karate, Taekwondo, Kung Fu. It's all the same. Like put mm-hmm. him in it. He'll quit in a month. And, uh, especially since I, I like to tell everybody, you know, no matter how crazy your dream is, um, I was a fat kid that couldn't sit still and had no friends. And so it's like, if I can make it to the Olympics, like literally anybody can make, anybody can not only do that, they can do whatever they're trying to do as long as they don't quit. And so it's like, mm-hmm. um, like I said, even my parents were said the, yeah, enroll him, get him a stupid uniform. He'll quit in a month. And it's like, even now they're like, Hey, are you finally ready to quit? Like you're kind of getting up there in age. So it's like, uh, I, it definitely shocked everybody, but as far as most historic thing I've been involved with, yeah, the Olympics probably takes the cake for sure. Yeah, it's got it. It absolutely has to. Okay, could you say your name real quick? John Farina. Um, and what day is it? And where are we? <laughs> we are in Washington, D.C. Today is when? Is today Wednesday? I have no idea. Yeah, today's day Wednesday, is. <laughs> January 20th, mm-hmm. 20th 2021. Which is Inauguration Day. Um, Hell yeah. We're both here shooting, covering the event. But unlike me, you were here two weeks ago. Yeah. Oh, for the Capitol, uh, <laughs> whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> when people went into the Capitol when they weren't quite allowed. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, was pretty wild. So I, I wanted to ask you, the episode is called proximity to history. It's all about people who were a part of history, but we're not the point. Okay, cool. Yeah. So like, and you are a perfect embodiment of that. You were Absolutely. someone who was at the Capitol for the insurrection but you weren't doing the insurrection you weren't stopping the insurrection just witnessing and documenting and um you had a very popular clip uh talk a little bit about that 
Yeah, uh, well, that was from the tunnel of where the president-elect would uh, walk out during the inauguration ceremony. Um, we got caught in that. It was on the west side of the building and uh, just got caught up and at the police line, mm-hmm. uh, just documenting the clashing, um, you know, fighting between, who? And, uh, between the, the mob of Trump supporters, people who were fighting for Trump. You know, they're beating the police officers as they're screaming, fight, uh, fight for USA, fight for America, fight for Trump. And meanwhile, they're, you know, they're beating their own people. Try, and, and you were like <laughs> at the doorway to get into the Capitol. Yeah. Did yeah, they yeah. break through that line? They never broke through. Uh, they were there for, I would say, over an hour fighting the police trying to push through them. And uh, did you get tear gas that day? Oh, I was, yeah, I was pretty much drowning in. And like pepper spray and uh, tear gas, my face was burning, my hands were burning. Uh, well, and what was it like to be there on that day in comparison to the other shit you've covered? It was just, uh, I think it was more shocking to see that the police, you know, the police that were on the ground, the officers that were on the ground, they, they fought hard, but... It's just they didn't have enough reinforcements. Mm-hmm. Um, so that obviously was a failure from the top. Um, and it was just shocking to see how they how how the people acted towards the police, because normally you go to these rallies and a lot of them say back to blue, you know, our law enforcement, uh, you know, they, they we appreciate you, this and that. And meanwhile, you know, you see you're watching them beat the shit out of them. So here's basically. a question I have for you. Um, me and you, we've, we've worked a lot together in 2020, or a decent amount together. We've, we've been around each other. Because of COVID, you're one of the people I saw a lot in 2020 in comparison to, like, friends and family. I met and hung out with you because we were around each other. We had a reason to be, and I'm happy for it. But I witnessed some pretty historic stuff with you uh, when we went to the Trump rally in Latrobe. Mm-hmm. That's the closest I've been to a living president. Um, but you've also, you were in uh, Kenosha. Oshkosh, you were traveling the world covering shit this this uh, yeah, this, this year. One, yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you think the most historic thing you witnessed this year was? Oh, definitely the capital uh, capital riots. Would you say that that's the most the most historic thing you've ever witnessed in in life? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, All absolutely. Right. Yeah, I mean that that really uh, really shocked me. You know, see that happen, go down. I mean, I know. Listen, I know. Fucking, you know the the system. You know, it comes down on people for so many years and people have a reason to be upset, but the reasons why they were doing it and it's the way they went about wrong. it, it's like, <laughs> yeah. what's that? It's harder when you're, like, wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, yes, people are right to be mad, but the facts that got you there are, are incorrect, which is going to make you do some incorrect stuff. Right, right. Uh, so what, what, where can people follow and support you? Uh, well, I mean, my Instagram is John Farina. J-O-N J-O-N, or J-O-N? No H. Got you. Uh, I'm on Twitter, John Farina Photo, and I also do live reporting on Status Coup. All right. Well, thank you, buddy. Yeah, thank you. You definitely always listen to jazz when you write your feed.
Introducing Randy Credico. Introducing Randy Credico. Introducing Randy Credico. Well, I started out very young. Uh, I was an impressionist. I was inspired by David Fry, who was a, uh, a crack impressionist, particularly political impressions. And uh, uh, not that he was a political satirist, but I was inspired by political satirists later on. Uh, including Mort Saul, but you know, I started out young, and I was an impressionist man. I did uh, some political impressions, but standard ones, but mostly movie stars and TV stars. You know, uh, Johnny Carson, Robert Blake, uh, Groucho Marx, mm -hmm. uh, Jimmy Stewart. I did the whole uh, gamut of uh, of the uh, old stars in Hollywood and uh, some of the new ones like Jack Nicholson or whatever. That was my bread and butter, and I, you know, was floating around. My parents lived in Vegas, and I'd go to Vegas. I had a friend of mine who was a tennis pro at the Hilton, and he introduced me to some people, and I got up on stage, very green. But, you know, I got around, and I, and I started, I really worked hard on it, and um, going at the improv and the, at the comedy store. And you know, I was, like, really a good impressionist, and somehow I got more political later on, in, in like, uh, 79 or 80. Until like 24, 25. Then Mort Saul, one of the acts at the Hilton where my friend was a tennis pro. Mort, I saw him one day. I was reading reading something, and he told me he had seen the show. He says, why don't you stop doing impressions and do something that's topical? You know what I mean? Uh, I like the impressions, but do something because they're so limited. At any rate, he, uh, I started reading a lot more. I read the book called The Chicago Conspiracy. And it was about Kunstler mostly. I, that's what I drew out of it was Kunstler's personality. After uh, this um, uh, thing was so I was working around uh, in Las Vegas and Reno and Tahoe at the Sahara Hotel. And then I finally, in 81, I went to, uh, I came to New York City on a lark. I went back and forth and, and started like, uh, doing the clubs here. I started working out and I got the Tonight Show out of New York in 84, uh, out of Catch a Riding Stars, working there in Dangerfields. That's what I was going to uh, say. You, so a part of like, so I have some notes here, like on the proximity to history thing, you were on the Johnny Carson show in 1984 and you were also on Vice News in 2019. That's, that's a wide ranging career. And two very different things. And I, from what I read, your Johnny was Carson. Was that Vice News in this year or last year? Yeah, I think that was, was last that, year. Yeah, 2019. Yeah, the guy was following me around uh, in the car and I was going nuts. I got stuck. <laughs> uh, but this know. is what I mean. Um, so even your Johnny Carson appearance, wasn't that like, uh, didn't you get flack for that? Yeah, I did. I got flack for, and nobody knows for sure. There were a couple of reasons. Look, it was only back then. There, there was, I think, not, what was it, Turner? What's the name of that Turner Channel, the one out of the Superstation? There was the one station out of uh, out of Atlanta. Atlanta. It wasn't CNN. TBS, huh? TNT. That was it, man. That was one you could get, but there wasn't too many outside of that. And uh, there was like seven channels, man. That was it, broadcast channels. And most three of those were local. But what you did know? you do so, that got you, like, yelled at? I did. I, you know, I, I first of all, I said something about Jean Kirkpatrick. I called her a Nazi and, a real, <laughs> and hammered her. And then I also did an impression. And the, at the encouragement of the talent coordinator, Jim, uh, I forget his last, Macaulay, I did an impression of Carson. And uh, I don't think Carson liked that too much. So he liked it. He had to know the guy. He's, you know, Rich Little. Rich Little, um, 
did an impression of him on the show, and he didn't mind that. But they, hey, how, how about this? How about this weather? Where? We're, we're having out here in California, isn't it wild? <laughs> he had been doing the show for years. and uh, But when I did it, I think it, uh, you know, got him a little upset. And uh, so did uh, whatever. I don't know what it was. Network guys. All I know is is that when the show was was, was over, Jim McCauley says that, um, that the um, Freddie DeCordova, who is the um, executive producer, said this kid is great and gave him like one of those okay things. He'll be back. I was never back, man. Yeah. That was it, man. That was, um, although if, the, if you watch the set, the set went over well. And a lot of laughs, a lot of applause, yeah. Like just that one thing, uh, you know, went over like a lead balloon. Uh, doing an impression of, uh, of Johnny and B, the Gene Kirkpatrick line. Just before the election, man, like a week before the election. But, you know, at that point, it didn't really fucking matter because there's no way I could hurt um, Reagan against Mondale. Yeah, so you, as a political satirist, you started off literally just doing the comedy circuit, standard comedy career. When do when does activism take hold? Because I saw that you, you were yelling about the prison industrial complex and un, unjust... Yeah, activism really started heavy. Yes, it was started back then, man. Activism started when I was against the war and I, when I was 18. But then when I was in Vegas and all of that, I would write letters to um, to Newsweek. I got a couple of published in Newsweek. I was always furious about the criminal justice system uh, and the direction of the Burger Court back then. And, of course, the war in Vietnam. I was always concerned about these uh, issues. When it came into my act after Reagan won, I was doing it in Vegas, man. I just remember when Reagan did something with the air traffic controllers. I was working at a club and a review at the Imperial Palace, which was owned by this guy who would celebrate Hitler's birthday. He had like, oh. um, his name was Ralph Ingalls. He owned the Imperial Palace and he's big racist and Nazi guy, man. And, you know, he saw my act in the, in the lounge that I was working with these dancers. And he said, told the, told the, the producer, the show, he said, get rid of him. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I mean, I said, he saw me one time, been there for like a week. And he says, get rid of him. So it was a real drag. It was a night show with some pretty women. And, and uh, you know, I, I was doing dabbling in 81. I was dabbling in uh, with um, Reagan. And I was doing, I did a great Reagan. And I was already doing stuff with Reagan in 81 in Las Vegas. But it was, it was, it wasn't that heavy. I worked the Tropicana Hotel. Around that time, I had the whole election year. I had this routine that did the entire election year, man. Mm -hmm. From fall, I, it was a seven minute routine where I went through the entire year. I remember right after the election, 1980, that uh, Red and I were sitting around after Reagan had gotten um, uh, and the Senate went all Republican. We were both basically crying. He says, that's it, man. They got all the rope in the world. Let's see if they pull it. So, uh, all right, I'm going to just say, um, like, what were you doing at, or like, and I'll, and I'll just, you can talk about what you were doing at that place. What were you yeah. doing in Talia, Texas? What is that story all about? And in Talia, Texas, I was in the middle of this great, um, uh, movement in New York, uh, this uh, fight against the New York State drug laws. Mm. And after a couple of years, I uh, I got this letter in 2000 from a preacher in uh, in uh, Texas 
knowing the work that we were doing, asking us to come down there and examine this Tulia case. So I went down there, I watched one of the trials. I brought Sarah Kunstler with me and, um, and Bill Kunstler's daughter, and we started, um, uh, you know, getting involved down there, man. We got involved. See, she started taking videos. I started organizing, getting a lot of attention uh, for, for the this case and then i started you know i started raising money and getting attention like i said international attention on it i brought the new york times what down there and what, what times, huh? well 46 kids were were um uh, shane guide into the into the prison system uh based on some racist uh ex-klansman cop that uh in the town of five thousand claimed that half the fucking black population was selling drugs. I mean, there's no customers. You know what I mean? He'd be the only customer. Nobody else was using cocaine except for him. Mm-hmm. So at any rate, it, it, it was a, it was a, a three-year odyssey, uh, this thing, but it finally resolved itself and everybody got out. And it comes for fun, can take a huge amount of credit, if not a lion's share of the credit for its work down there. They were going to make that into a movie, and you know based on my deal and the lawyers that i brought in the lawyers like came in late they they didn't like they saw the opportunity once it presented themselves but talk about some of the lawyers lawyers that i worked with were great Mm -hmm. the one that went on to become the uh criminal justice um i think civil rights division of the justice department vanita gupta was it was all about promoting her career and i spent a lot of time with her and um you know she uh, used uh, our organization. She was with the legal and defense fund of the NAACP. And uh, it was all about coming, parachuting, and a lot of people parachuting into these uh, uh, stories, just mm-hmm. like Andrew Cuomo did with the Rockefeller drug laws in 2002. You know. So talk about the Rockefeller drug laws. That was my next question. What was your involvement with fighting against those I, what was wrong yeah, with you, well you know about uh, rockefeller drug laws because that's the that was the key uh movement that uh, we were responsible for that in tulia i was uh working on richard belzer's uh, comedy uh, special for hbo mm-hmm. another moon nut 1997 and belzer and i did a lot of cocaine during the mm-hmm. uh during the writing and then the production and then the post editing uh and uh and when it was over, man, I got so sick. I said, I got to dry out. I went to some shit club in Florida, man, some shit uh, motel in, in Tampa, Florida, man. It was yeah. like 25 bucks a night. And all I did was like walk around and read every single day. It didn't do anything. And then I saw this uh, show on C-SPAN uh, with Jeff Sessions and my this guy by the name of Anthony Papa who had done 12 years in jail under the Rockefeller mm-hmm. laws. And I was so astounded and aghast by it that I uh, I got back to New York. I hunted the guy down. And then I uh, was so frustrated. Here I'd probably done more cocaine than this guy had ever sold. And so uh, he, he painted his way out. He got clemency. And it was a C-SPAN special. Well, you know, I won't get into the details. Yeah, but watching, um, watching Jeff Sessions be, I presume, defending the drug laws... Yeah, 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 yeah. They and were then, defending. He was defending drug. This is nineteen ninety-seven. That yeah, I was going to say. So, what was it like? This is another proximity to history thing. You you see this in nineteen ninety-seven, and then you see him essentially being uh, the top cop in the United States uh, yeah, two yeah. decades. Yeah, ago. Was, he never changed. He got worse, 
And when, when he got nominated, uh, you know, by, uh, you know, I knew this was going to be bad news. I knew they were going to go after us. It's the same as Barr, man. Barr goes after the same people, small-time drug, uh, uh, you know, keep it black and keep it poor is where they focus their criminal justice uh, prosecutions. You know, I knew that going in that this guy was going to be a bad motherfucker, man. And mm. uh, he was pushed out. And he got replaced by a guy just as bad, well, you yeah. know. Um, even worse, man, because he's more sinister, you know. You know, he's more sinister. And he's, uh, the other guy was a yokel racist. And, the, 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 and Barr is a sophisticated racist. That was, uh, that was uh, what led me into organizing families of prisoners and... Um, and, and I remember I had already been to, I've done so much activism in 86. I, I spent four years in Nicaragua helping out the Sandinistas that and going back and forth. I had, it, it was what the hell, where the hell do the Sandinistas come in? They come in because my, um, because I was a big fan of their revolution in 79. I was working in Reno, the two revolutions that year, that one and the one in Iran. And I supported both of them. Uh, but the one in uh, Nicaragua, I really, I really, I'd known a lot about it, read a lot about Nicaragua. And I, so I went down there on a lark one day, just to check it out, see what it was like down there. And um, I loved it, man. I loved it. And then I started going there. I started doing my act in front of the U.S. Embassy there, pissing off uh, embassy personnel, but it was all poor people, not poor people, all supporters of Sandinistas. They call them Sandalistas, uh, international brigades that were down there picking coffee. They'd have this Sunday, uh, Thursday morning uh, vigil at 7 a.m. And I, you know, everyone would say something serious. You'd have a congressman maybe there. You'd have all sorts of people. I got up there and uh, did it one day. Then they had me back there every week uh performing if i could wake up man remember it was like it was a thursday or wednesday night we'd go to some you know bar down there and drink the cheap unfermented um we did it almost every day and that's what you did down there man you Mm. fucking drink if you were in managua go outside of the city uh you know i would do that but um a lot but i really um loved the place i loved the people it was like being in spain in the early 30s or berlin in the late uh, 20s or paris uh, you know during uh, their golden era in the 20s and 30s uh but before the nazis came in so so i did a lot of activism down there and you know i 92 uh is 92 I, I worked on J- jerry brown's campaign i i emceed everything in new york state uh i i would emcee he'd show up i got another nicaragua question you were doing reagan comedy and reagan impressions and reagan acts and then he all of a sudden gets all this power and then you go to to essentially help the sandinistas while Reagan is funding the conference. Right, right. My uncle was uh, an ex-CIA guy. He lived in Miami, uh, who fucking hated me for going down there, but um, uh, but wanted me to go down there and see how bad it was. He was a vehement anti-communist. He was in, uh, one of my uncles had no kids. Uh, he's pissed off. Uh, yeah, pissed the off Cold War at- tensions were high in the 80s, if I'm correct. Tensions were high with Nicaragua. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they're... Look, there was not a, there was an anti-war movement. There was a, um, it wasn't like the 60s because there's nobody being drafted. It was, you know, uh, 
this is all a policy dispute that was in Washington. And there were people that were upset because you had nuns being murdered. You know, Reagan's policy in Central and South America were terrible. You know, uh, particularly, you know, El Salvador and Guatemala. You know, I don't know why he's been this revisionism like he was some great leader right now. And they have all these white uh, historians like Douglas Brinkley and uh, the other two guys. They all look alike. Uh, forgot their names, but um, they're there. Doris uh, Goodwin, uh, Kearns Goodwin, they're all out there lionizing uh, Reagan as if he didn't do, he did all these nothing but evil things. I don't care if he gave a good speech one time. He certainly didn't fucking mean it. it he knew how to lead a country. What the fuck? He led us into the air traffic controllers all being fired. He led us into, uh, uh, you know, what happened in, uh, in El Salvador, 60,000 deaths. Uh, you know, breaking unions and uh, he was fucking horrible. Huh? Reaganomics. Reaganomics, yeah. He, he worked for the rich, man. He's a scumbag and everybody knows it. But you have these academics that are on historians. You know, we say, well, Trump is not presidential. What FDR would have done, what Lincoln would have done. And then they have to throw in Reagan, you know, like a speech by Reagan that he read, mm-hmm. you know. At any rate, and he feigned the seriousness. So getting back to Nicaragua, that's where I was, man. I spent a lot of time. I was very disappointed. When that was over, I ended up in Las Vegas working again. By the fucking show with Marty Croft with puppets. Hello? Yeah, were there repercussions from the American government for going to Nicaragua to be with the Sandinistas? Was that like was that allowed? Uh, yeah, you could you could do it. You were not. I did not get in trouble. I flew into JFK. I was a comedian, man. No one. Uh, I don't. Re- I don't recall ever getting into trouble. I lost my license down. I lost my uh, passport, or uh, passport got um, uh, fucked up, where the picture fell off. And everything. I had to go to the U.S. Embassy and get a new one. They had known me from being outside. They weren't very happy. But you know, look, I got along with a lot of people. It's it's because I'm, uh, you know. Um, I got a sense of humor, so, uh, you know, even though I'm serious half the time, I still have a sense of humor and able to communicate with people, you know. At Occupy Wall Street, I got arrested six times, but I knew all the cops, you know. I knew most of the cops around there. They all liked me, you know. Okay, so take us forward. You you were at Occupy Wall, Wall Street. That's that's like two thousand what four two thousand eight two thousand and eleven two thousand eleven. So that's two thousand eleven. Where does Roger Stone get into the mix? Where does yeah. Julian Assange and 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 getting caught up in that come into play? Well, man, it's, this story's been told so many times. Two thousand and two, I was working in on the Rockefeller drug laws, looking for a candidate. You know, I had shopped it around. The movement was very popular at that time, been five years old. But then two, two years after 2002, the laws would be changed, not radically changed, but changed enough to satisfy some of the people that were part of my organization. Mm-hmm. And 2002 was a pivotal year. It was an election year. Rockford drug laws was an issue. There was a black candidate with no money, Carl McCall, who uh, didn't have any money to do ads. And he had uh, Pataki, who was not... Um, not strong enough on, you know, he was not, he did not, he granted some clemencies. I had met with him, but they did not uh, do anything radical. Uh, this was the year to really fuck with him. Mm-hmm. So there was a fellow by the name of Tom Galassano running for, uh, as a third party independent and, um, Galassano, uh, what was I going to say? Galassano had, um, 
had done a couple of uh, Maverick ads. He's the owner of Paychex, right? Okay. And, you know, and he's a billionaire. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turned out Trump advised him to, he, he revealed later on that Trump advised him to uh, hire this fellow by the name of Roger Stone. I didn't know it. All it was, I, I was on a panel with somebody that worked for for Galasano, this drug legalization panel, this mm-hmm. guy was representing, and I told him who I was, and I said, I'd like to meet, I got some ideas, I'd like to help out the campaign. So I went to, um, I went to, he invited me to Roger Stone's apartment and meet him. I didn't know if Stone was the guy when I when mm-hmm. I was trying to, up. and so there I was, I was up there, I saw these ads that he had done, these legalized marijuana ads, I said, well, fuck, so Stone like makes me a martini, makes me a vodka martini. He's a martini guy. I'm a martini guy. He's a cigar guy. I'm a cigar guy. We had dinner. He's a uh, Al Jolson fan. I grew up with Jolson because my father was a Jolson freak and had like all the albums. And I grew up in a showbiz uh, environment because yeah. my father was a club called the Royal Tahitian. And it was all big named entertainment from Louis Armstrong to Bobby Guerin, uh, all of them, Ella Fitzgerald, they all worked there. So I, I was fortunate. I got to see them all. And that probably what gave me the early buzz uh, to, because he had a father that did 10 years in prison. Those two things that got me into the prison stuff before I was born. Of course, mm-hmm. he did 10 years in prison. So uh, getting back to Stone Stone, uh, we went to someplace where show, I think it was. We had a nice dinner uh, after having the martini. And uh, he says, it's a good idea. And then I introduced him to a guy by the name of Carl Ginsburg that could make the ads. And he let us spend like hundreds of thousands of dollars in ads. And I came up with ideas how to go after the Pataki. Okay. And this guy had $80 million he, he spent on the campaign. So Stone and I, that's how we met. And we had a, a up and down, uh, pleasant, sometimes unpleasant relationship over the next uh, uh, 18 years. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, not really. I mean, there was times I didn't speak to him for five years at a time. Yeah. Everyone thinks I was a close friend of his, man. If you take a look from 2010 to 2016, we didn't talk at all, except for he, he sent me a he sent me a message in 2000. Was it 2014? My God, damn, that was a long time. 2014 was it? Six years ago? Yeah, 2014, six years ago. Um, uh, had something to do with the uh, Schneiderman. It was attorney general. He just sent me an email telling me I, uh, I forgot, but that was it. And then 2016, um, 2016, what did we do? We did it again. And we did 2016. Oh, I had him on my radio show. I had a new show at WBAI. I was doing it twice a week, sometimes yeah. three times a week. And I put stone on, but you know, I had Dick Gregory. I had, um, I had some of the greatest, greatest of them all on man i had uh harry belafonte wayne barrett i had julian assange on that year yeah so and so and then stone the following year lied about it said that i was because i had you know he had a connection that lied to him guy by the name of course yes i figured it out of course he lied to him said he had it that he could he, he could uh, get information from assange you know why would assange 
give him information. If he's going to put something out, he's going to put it out. He's not going to like say, here, I'm going to trust it with Roger Stone to hold on to it until I put it out. It's, it's the most insane scenario. But, you know. So Jerome Corsi blamed you. He blamed me because he had lied to Congress. Mm-hmm. He like, First of all, he didn't want to say that he had this guy Corsi. Okay, and, and of course he didn't want to say he had to, that he and Trump were talking about it. He, he, you know, he pulled me in somehow, and they, and they, he tried to put, you know, backdate some fingerprints that I was a, a back channel. Why he did that? Why he just didn't say it was this guy Corsi? Because Corsi didn't want him to do it, and um, he just uh, left him somehow. All the trans, all the conversations he had with him that might have led to the president. This is what he did. What he did, he fucked me and said I was the guy. And you know, I had nothing but problems for the next couple of years. You know. Yeah, you were subpoenaed yeah. by Moore. Yeah, I got a subpoena, which was a rotten thing to do. Uh, you know, and uh, he thought it was funny. I didn't think it was funny. Uh, and, you know, he said, look, I'm going to, he wanted me to lie and say, it's all good. You know, he wanted me to lie, you know? Yeah. No, that's what I mean. It's been a mess. Like this, this whole, like not, not like the, the, your story, Randy is, is so robust. Uh, what do you want people to know about you that they might not know? Or understand about your career, because the reason I was drawn to you is because you have the type of career that I would aspire to have. You're a little bit of everywhere. You seem to be just kind of doing whatever you want, helping people, but you're also getting caught up in the system and rat fucked by people like Roger Stone and indicted by people who are equally scary on the other side, like Muir. So what what do you want people to know or understand about your career and what it is that you've done uh, in, in your time? Well, you know, I'll tell you, it's hard to say what uh, I what's most important. You know, the Rockefeller drug laws, look, the criminal justice system is never going to get great. It's bad. And, you know, at the end of this life goes by, you realize, you know, there's some shit that's never going to change. It was only 75 years ago that people were uh, discovered at Auschwitz, you know, and uh, uh, that happened in, the, in our lifetime. You know what I mean? It's something like that. And I, I'm reading it again. I'm reading Rise and Fall of the Third Reich about how things got so bad, how it spun out of control. But, you know, the Egyptians did bad things. The Romans did bad things. The people, the Middle Ages is rife with uh, of horror stories, you know, and uh it just genocide and shit like that. And, you know, it happened in the last 75 years. And it happened in Vietnam. And it happened, you know, and people are in jail and bad. Right now you have 50,000 people in prison. It happened in, in Iraq. What? It happened in Iraq. It's happening everywhere. It, really happened. it happened in Afghanistan, even though that's supposedly the good war. As if it's a good war. It's They were there to acquire fucking property and goods, you know. Wherever there's a wherever there's a commodity, there's soldiers, man. Uh, you know, fighting uh, for liberation. You know, it's all bullshit. Right now, it's uh, you know, Venezuela has the richest oil fields on the planet. We want that fucking oil, and uh, Iran, the second richest. We want that fucking oil. The you know, only places we're not we're not in the Sudan, man. Yeah. We don't give a fuck about Sudan or Morocco. 
uh, we only care about these unless they're landing uh, points to, to go to these other countries. But, you know, uh, there are reasons why, uh, what's his name, Mussolini went into Ethiopia because it's, it's a rich country, man. They got a lot of uh, great agriculture uh, and whatever else they have. There's reasons why, uh, you know, we're uh, we're fucking with Iran, why we, why we are in Afghanistan. And, you know... It's, it's, it's a terrible fucking, it's one, it's one thing I didn't do. I never, and I, I was, I was a dreamer, man. I was a dreamer and thought that I could change the world. I'm out there like, um, like what's his name? Cyrano, not Cyrano, but what's his name? The the other uh, character, Spanish character, Don, Don Quixote, you know, mm. uh, you know, you think you can change things, but you try anyway. You spend all your life trying. It's okay to do that to inspire somebody else to do it. That's all I can say. You try it because when you get to be 65, 66, my age, you say, my God, man, time went by quickly. Did I do it right? You know what I mean? Because you only get one shot at this. Now, anyone could accumulate a lot of money on Wall Street, uh, you know, and that's their success. Uh you know, is just making a lot of money. Uh, this guy with Facebook. I don't. I don't. What's the value? Zuckerberg. What is the, there's no product that he's given. There's not a hamburger. There's not a pair of shoes. <laughs> it's a hard cheesy fucking game that everybody's hooked on. You know. So uh, you know, he's selling advertising. So he's got all of this money. What good did he do for the human race in that period of time? You know. So that's that's how you measure. Uh, one's worth is the amount of money they uh, accumulate. People I know got money, man. You know, they get to be old real quickly and they realize they're mis- a lot of them are so miserable because they didn't do anything with their time. I got friends with a lot of fucking money and that's what they do. They're like an ant. They eat and, uh, you know, they're like a bug. They just eat and shit and sleep yeah. and eat and shit. And, 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 you know, so being out there is good for the soul uh trying to get somebody out of prison man you know when you get when you got i got people out of prison in my lifetime i you know that's that was good i reunited some families it was way too late they some of them spent 12 13 years in prison but you finally get them out and then then you get burnt out man because uh, you realize uh, there's uh, whatever is it's like it's it's like finding a, a dead rat. You know, there's a million fucking rats in, 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 inside. So Very the rats are the criminal justice McDonald's system. Or Burger King, you fought you fought a rat. That was another thing you did. Oh yeah, it was McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. There was <laughs> a, um, there was rats on the street in this this very. Um, uh, you know, historical street called Gay Street. William Kunstler uh, had his office and his house, and I used to live there, have my office there too. And there were rats all over the place. And uh, at one point, and I traced it down to McDonald's because they had standing water uh, in mm. in the back, in, in the you know, in the driveway in the back behind uh, this wooden uh, uh, gate. And they would never let anybody back there. I finally got back there and saw it and started taking pictures of it. And then I, and I told the McDonald's where I started putting flyers inside uh, on the window there because the guy wouldn't do anything about it. He wouldn't do anything about it. So the rats need water. To, they need stay. They need garbage. So they got the garbage, the food in the back, and the in, in the McDonald's. Uh, uh, um, you know what do you call it? Those. Um, Big bins, receptacles, like you know what I mean? Trap. 
the big those big bins, man. Those yeah. metal things are going. So uh, they get the McDonald wrappers, the piece of cheese on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the rats would go in and they drink the water because there was standing water there, man. The rats need water, and that's where they would go. So I started. I got kids on the street, man, protesting on the fucking street uh, with rat ears. So I got about 10 people one day and the news was there. Uh, and um, well, I didn't know what year this was. It was 1999. But did you get them, didn't you get like McDonald's to change the trash policy? Yeah, he totally did. The guy called me up all the time and he said, look, uh, you know, he lived in Greenwich, Connecticut, the owner of the McDonald's. So I finally got him to uh, spend $20,000 to uh, refurbish that fucking background. And the rats went away. Hey, all right. I, I've taken up plenty of your time. Do you have anything to say to the people of the year 2100? Uh, Jay, I hope, I hope we didn't leave it in as big a mess as I think it's going to be. And I, I'm sorry, more people in the year 2020 didn't think about the people in 2100 you know it, it, it's you got to think about the next generation man you can't just you just can't live for today you got to think about the future and 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 the, and the human race hopefully it will have evolved by that point but i don't even think it's going to be around but if it is you found a different planet to live on because this one's gone all right and wherever you are there you are Life's a piece of shit when you look at it. Life's a laugh and death's a joke, it's true. You'll see it's all a show, keep them laughing as you go. Just remember that the last laugh is on you. And always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the right side of life. Thank you to Steve Lambden, John Farina, and lastly, Randy Credico for being the guests for this Proximity to History episode. And I believe that uh, the subject matter for this episode kind of reveals a bit about myself. Like, have you ever heard of, like, storm chasers, the people that drive around and chase hurricanes and chase uh, tornadoes and all that shit, tsunamis? I'm kind of like that, but with the news. I'm like a news chaser. That's That's how it feels, like... And history, like a history chaser, because it feels like one of the main things that I'm doing is chasing these big moments or or at least things that interest me, whether it be going to the inauguration, which happened um, about five days after the inauguration. There wasn't exactly many candid moments to get audio from for the ending of this episode because very fitting to the moment, it lacked conclusion, it lacked the clarity, it lacked... Yeah, no, no it, 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 that's kind of how history is, though, is that you could have the recording of a big moment, but it doesn't exactly encapsulate the truth of the matter. Like, everybody remembers big famous speeches, but after those speeches, what did those leaders do? And I think Randy brought that up. Like, you could have your big famous speech, and you can have your big moment or your big win or your big party, like in an inauguration. Like, you'd have your big ceremony, but... That's only a symbol of what history actually is. History 
is made behind closed doors unless you're like guest John Farina or guest Stephen Lambden and you kind of work your way into history. You don't get to just decide to go to D.C. and all of a sudden you're seeing history. Like, for example, I witnessed uh, Trump's plane take off for the final time and leave the White House. Technically, that's history. I mean, I watched him leave. I watched the guy go. And then I watched the new president, Joe Biden, go to church and then go to the inauguration. And I I talked to a senator, Senator Chris Coons out of Delaware. So I, I guess I guess in a way the the inauguration was historic but it it doesn't nearly uh it doesn't feel it you know it's different when you when when it's something more substantive or if or i think it was too big too there were so many media and so many journalists it was hard to feel like i had any attachment to the moment i felt like just another cog in the wheel which is kind of something i hope to avoid in my journalism career but that's about proximity to history. I think I think there is an importance. You're you're either the type of person that is interested in having a, a voice or a role in the greater narrative of the world, or you're the type of person that wants to just sit back and enjoy their lives. And I I, I see that most people are the latter. They are the, most people want to be left alone and just to have like a life to themselves and hope that things are good enough for them personally i feel like i that that you can't do that nowadays because uh things are bad beyond repair uh in most cases which i feel is the reason why so many people choose to do nothing because it's defeating it's it's hard to find what you can do to affect the world or 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 where you fit in in history like most people think that they don't deserve that and i i do i think i do <laughs> and i think and i think everybody should think that i don't know maybe that's my ego but um this has been season 3 uh one of the early episodes i don't know if this is the season premiere or not but uh thank you to guests Steve Lambden John Farina and Randy Credico thank you and happy 2100 Remember they told me that I wouldn't get it and I wouldn't got it. <laughs> shit. <laughs> I ain't had shit but live in my pockets, nigga. I was having withdrawals, now I'm at the bank, making deposits, nigga. Shout out to Fifth the Bucket, Richard, I tryin', ain't no other option, I gotta go get it. Remember my mom being broke as a joke, pay the rent with the light bill, shout out. And they cut off the lights, it was dark at the house, but I knew I was bright still, shout out. And they cut off the heat and my heart got cold, I'm talking about ice chill, shout out. I knew I was great, even though niggas hated, I made it like Mike Will, shout out. Went from eating no ramen to getting it poppin', can't take shit for granted, you know how we rockin', I made it look easy, like straight out of Countin' and now I'm gon' go, ain't no motherfuckin' stoppin' You see what I saw comin' up from the bottom Made me a minutes like Dennis, no rhyming. Gettin' this shit ain't no motherfuckin' problems I get him, I gotta put fuckin' the ride, nigga, follow the plan Ayy, follow the time, we were late on the rent at the first of the month Ayy, here with PB&J every day, now we eatin' no cunts for lunch Ayy, now I walk in the store with my mama and tell her to buy what she want I ain't hearin' that shit that you talkin' about Shut the fuck up!